This podcast is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law with funding support from the NOAA Sea Grant College Program. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Welcome back to Season 2 of the National Sea Grant Law Center's Law on the Half Shell podcast. In case you're new to the podcast or just need a gentle reminder, my name is Zachary Klein. I am one of the Law Center's Ocean and Coastal Law Fellows, and it is my pleasure to be your host this season while my colleagues and I shed some light on the unique legal issues that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused for America's coastal communities. So far this season, we've covered cruise lines and the seafood industry. Today, we're pivoting slightly to the world of fishing. Fishing in federal U.S. waters is governed by the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, which you'll learn more about in this episode. Spoiler alert, the Magnuson-Stevens Act allows the U.S. government to decide how many fish we can catch every year, who is allowed to catch those fish, and how fishing records are monitored for accuracy to ensure that there will continue to be fish for us to catch in the future. All of these components of the statutes were affected to some degree by COVID-19. On today's episode, Olivia Deans, my fellow Ocean and Coastal Law Fellow at the National Sea Grant Law Center, will lead us in a conversation concerning some of the surprising ways in which the pandemic has affected the management of federal fisheries. Without further ado, let's cast our line with Olivia and find out what stories and lessons she'll help us reel in on today's episode. So today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing COVID's impact on the Magnuson-Stevens Act and fishery management in general. I think COVID's impact to the Magnuson-Stevens Act and fishery management is a really good example of how regulatory frameworks can adapt and need to adapt to unexpected events. Um, So specifically, we'll kind of get into the need for flexibility to quota share transfers, and the National Observer Program. Um, So joining me today is Stephanie Otts, the director of the Law Center, and she has many years of experience working with fishermen and familiarity with the Magnuson-Stevens Act. So Stephanie, I kind of like to think about the Magnuson-Stevens Act as sort of like the main tool for federal management of fisheries. Um, And I know for me, like in law school, we didn't really touch on it a lot. Like, I think I learned that, you know, basically it's about um, protecting like the long-term sustainability of fisheries. But I think it's a lot more complex than that. And I've really started to learn more about it. But I don't know, would you say that's accurate? How would you kind of describe the Magnuson-Stevens Act? Yeah, Olivia, no, I think that's a a great question. I think of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the statue itself, a bit of the tip of the iceberg where the real meat of what's going on, you often don't see because fisheries management happens 
across the country in different regions and on an ongoing basis. And so, um, as you mentioned, the Magnuson-Stevens Act is the primary federal law governing fisheries management in federal waters. And those are the waters that are further out to sea than the state coastal waters, which are usually zero to three nautical miles out from shore. And then from three to 200 nautical miles is federal waters. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of area, it sounds like it covers. And I've heard that like some states have more, more areas than others. Can you explain kind of like why that is? Yes, that is a really fascinating story. And I encourage anyone who is interested to Google and learn a little more due to some quirks of history and successful litigation in the early 1900s when the coastal states and the federal government were kind of battling out who should have jurisdiction over our coastal waters. The states of Florida and Texas were able to argue that they should have a broader or wider coastal zone to manage. And so for Florida, um, off the west coast of Florida into the Gulf of Mexico and Texas, they actually have nine miles of coastal waters that they're able to regulate. And this was partly due to um, the fact that Texas claimed nine miles while it was an independent republic for a few years there um, when they, I guess, left Mexico or <laughs> like seceded from Mexico. Yeah. And then Florida um, also had different under Spanish treaties claimed more. So, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think, yeah, it sounds like it can get pretty complex, but like you're saying, yeah, it's definitely sort of like a mix between federal management, but it also impacts state management like that. Right. Yeah. And as we all know, you know, fish don't know uh, where these uh, jurisdictional lines are. And so fish stocks obviously do move between state and federal waters. And so fisheries management is really complex because you have to take into the dynamics of the ecosystem itself and the fish stocks. But you also have these overlays of federal and state jurisdiction. So how does that management kind of work? Like what are some, what is the main framework for how that happens? Yeah, so the Magnuson-Stevens Act established a process by which they, it established eight regional fishery management councils. And so it divided the United States up into eight regions and then assigned a council that is made up of individuals with a stake in the fishery. And so members, council members include federal and state officials, but also commercial and recreational fishermen. And the councils are charged with developing fishery management plans to manage the stocks under their jurisdiction. And I think the easiest way to think about a fishery management plan is this is where the councils are going to say who can fish where with what gear and how much fish everybody can take right it's this really laying out that plan it sounds like yeah these plans can get very detailed then for the fisheries i think that's kind of interesting how you pointed out that it's made up of different stakeholders and 
to me, that's really interesting to just, it's so challenging to balance all of these interests. So I appreciate that there's a lot of different views that I, they can kind of, you know, work together to make these complicated plans. Yeah, and the councils are assisted in their efforts by uh, a range of committees that are made up of experts in different fields. And so, for instance, there's a statistical committee that kind of really crunches the numbers, right, about what the status of the fish stocks are. And then all those kind of expertise from those committees kind of feeds up and helps the actual council members um, make those decisions about what the management should look like. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And I definitely think it can get complex. And I think that, you know, we've talked about this, but that sort of highlights like why it's challenging for the law to sort of adapt to COVID and these events when you have these really complex plans and just a lot of people involved. Yes. And if you think about it, for those that aren't familiar uh, with the process, so that councils will develop a plan, which is uh, written like a report, um, right? But the councils themselves don't have any independent authority to impose these requirements on the fishermen participating in the fishery. And so NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has to implement the plans for the councils. And that means they have to publish regulations actually setting forth the requirements and the mandates to carry out whatever the councils would like to do. And so uh, regulations can take a long time to get through the process. You have to publish them, accept public comment, um, and then publish some final regulations. And so um, when you're looking at something that could take a year or two to get in place, it's hard to change those quickly um, if something comes up that wasn't anticipated. Yeah, I'm sure COVID was, you know, none of us anticipated it. So it's really interesting to kind of see that dynamic playing out right now. I'm wondering what your view is on like, what sort of impacts from COVID have you heard about um, to the Magnuson-Stevens Act or just through fisheries in general? Really big picture. Of course, COVID hit the fishing industry hard like it did every industry. No one was really sure like whether it was safe to go out on a boat with, you know, maybe 10 other people. And then there were also impacts on the supply chains, uh, either because the, the restaurants were closed and weren't maybe weren't buying the amount of seafood that they normally did. But then there were also some things that were very unique and I think specific to the way that fishing is just conducted in the United States. And so I remember kind of early in the pandemic hearing stories about people who were participating in Alaska fisheries, but were not from Alaska. And I had never thought about that. There was like a news story about people who uh, lived in New York and then just went to Alaska for a month to participate in, I think it maybe was like the salmon fishery. But at the when the travel restrictions started to be put into place because of the pandemic, then people couldn't, you know, move around. Yeah. And um, another example uh, of this that, you know, predates the pandemic is, um, I don't know how many of our listeners may watch The Deadliest Catch, but those individuals that are participating in uh, the, the 
crab fishery, a lot of their families live in Seattle or the Pacific Northwest because Dutch Harbor, Alaska is very isolated and, you know, they don't live there year round. And until the pandemic, I had never really thought about what would happen um, if you weren't able to travel to the location where you actually conducted the fishing. Yeah, same with same with me. I never would have really thought about that. You mentioned sort of like having to fish for like quota shares or, you know, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one aspect of, I don't know, I don't want to call it modern fishery management, but like the current fisheries management is we have, the United States has moved away from what used to be called like a race for the fish, where the fishing season would just open and Anybody who had a boat and permission to go out and fish could just go out. And that led to a lot of management problems. One, it wasn't as easy to track how many fish all of those boats were catching. And so sometimes in a season, they caught more fish than the agencies wanted them to, and they had to shut the season down early. But also there were a lot of safety concerns. As you mentioned, if the weather is bad, but the season is going to be short, uh, you have to go out anyway. Um, And so there was concerns just about not being able to really uh, delay uh, fishing activity to when it was safer. And so as an alternative, some fisheries have gone to what is known as a quota system, where each participant in the fishery uh, receives a certain amount of fish that they're allowed to catch during a particular season. And it's known as a quota. And so each year, the council's will determine the overall quota for fisheries. So let's say we're fishing for halibut and we're able to catch 500,000 pounds of halibut. Uh, They will then divide that 500,000 pounds among all of the licensed participants in the halibut fishery, usually based on past participation in the fishery. And so Some people might get 100,000 that they're allowed to try to catch, and some might get 50 or more, but everybody's kind of divided up. But in those quota systems, once they're established and the participants are all set, that quota is what the participant gets. And so one of the things that came up in COVID is, okay, what if you're a holder of this quota, but you can't get to Alaska? to fish. And so one, your quota would go to waste um, and you wouldn't get the income from the year because you weren't able to fish. But there's also some potential consequences for not using that quota. There were some things already in the law to try to provide some flexibility to quota systems. For instance, the halibut and sable fish fishery in Alaska already had a provision on the books that allowed a temporary transfer for um, medical purposes, right? So let's say that a a captain or a crew member um, who had a quota share got sick or their family member got sick and they couldn't fish that year, they could temporarily transfer their quota to somebody else who could. But that wasn't written um, for like what was coming up in COVID, right? Where the individuals weren't sick, but couldn't travel due to government restrictions. Right. Interesting. Yeah. What kind of happened? How did, did the agency react at all to that problem? 
Yes. So uh, Nella, uh, as you know, when the seasons were starting to come online, um, they were able to enact kind of emergency regulations, which just means that they didn't have to go through that full one to two year process because they needed to get something in place quickly to enact emergency regulations to allow temporary transfers of quota to other licensed participants in the fishery um, so that those fish could be, you know, caught and um, the income from that not lost. Yeah. One of the kind of ongoing concerns with quota share programs is when they're put into place, those quotas become valuable, right? So the, the fish have economic value. And if you're able to fish for them, that's something that people will pay for. And not every quota program allows the transfer of your quota rights kind of freely, but some do. And there's the concern that it will result in what's known as consolidation of the fleet, which simply means that if you have a thousand boats participating in a fishery before a quota share program, you're probably going to end up with less boats participating afterwards because it just you know, some people aren't going to have enough quota to make it economically worthwhile. And so they kind of either sell their quota or it gets transferred to other participants and you just end up, you know, kind of losing boats out of the fleet. And so the reason why the agency doesn't have that many exemptions to these transfer requirements is because they want to try to avoid excess consolidation of the fleets. And so they made these temporary, right? Like they were doing emergency rules to allow these temporary transfers to deal with COVID, but not making them permanent, right? Because there could be unintended consequences if you allow quota to be freely traded. I wouldn't have thought of that, really. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the long term, I think, and to see kind of what happens. You know, why you may not want quota to be freely traded is the, you know, there can be concerns that the people that have the money to buy the quota might not be the people who are fishing. I think it is was good that the agency was able to get these temporary transfer provisions in place to help fishing participants deal with the COVID pandemic. But you don't want to make a permanent decision in that type of crisis because you don't really know what, you know, the long-term impact might be. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, hopefully we'll learn some lessons from this like process and how it went, but definitely illustrates the complexity in trying to change the law and also have it, you know, do do its job and do what it's established to do. So what are some other fishery management impacts you heard about from COVID? Yeah, I think the other category of impacts that interested me um, was COVID impact on the fishery observer program. So fishery observer refers to an individual that goes out on the boat with the fishing crew to observe, right? Just like what it name says. And so they are there, they can be there for different reasons. So observer programs 
uh, vary by the fishery for what the observer is looking for. So the observer might be there to ensure that no more fish are caught um, than are supposed to be, but they are more often there to monitor for like interactions with other protected species. So they may be there to ensure that or document interactions with whales or dolphins and to assure that any equipment or techniques that are supposed to be used are abided by, by the fishing crew. Um, okay. uh, or bycatch of other species such as birds or, or things like that. So it's a pretty challenging job. If you can imagine, if you could put yourself in their position, um, it's, you know, there's a person who is a stranger probably yeah. <laughs> to this fishing crew that is there to keep their eyes on what they're doing. So I've always thought that was an interesting position to be put in. Yeah. I, I mean, I imagine it could be like a little awkward at the least, but I'm kind of glad we have that sort of like safety net to sort of monitor these programs and I'm sure help inform um, these fishery management plans. I think it's a, it's a really interesting program. You know, the observers are trained to monitor and collect data. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be negative for yeah. the, the fishing crews, right? It, it could help the, the fishing crews document that there aren't, you know, negative interactions with certain species and, and help to build kind of trust among regulators and the regulated community. But with COVID, it became, you know, a workplace safety issue for NOAA and the agency, right? Like, was it going to be safe to send observers out on fishing boats in the middle of the COVID pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I imagine, like, I wouldn't, at the time, I wouldn't have wanted to invite people over to my, my work or my home. So I imagine, you know, you don't really want a lot of people that have the potential to spread the virus coming on your boat. So I definitely understand the rationale there. Yeah, I think the observer program had the same challenge as the actual fishery as well, in the sense that um, some of the trained observers may not have lived in the communities where the boats were leaving from. And so they also not only might have had concerns for their own personal safety, they may not have been able to get to where they needed to be to join the fleet. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of, a lot of challenges, certainly. So how, how did they deal with that? What did the agency do? One thing I forgot to mention is that some observer programs are required by law. So you ha so the a fishing boat has to have an observer anytime they go out to fish. Other programs are voluntary. And so of course that would add a layer of complexity to the response to COVID, right? If it was a voluntary program, maybe you could just say, well, okay, for the for the next couple of months, we don't you don't have to have an observer. Yeah. Um, but for the mandatory programs, you know, if the observer wasn't on board, that would potentially open the fishing captain or crew, whoever's responsible for um, ensuring compliance with the law, that they're not in compliance. And so similar to the temporary rules for quotas, the agency NOAA did take emergency action to waive observer coverage requirements. I think we all heard about the 
transmission of COVID on cruise ships. And yeah. so there was a lot of uncertainty about what safety protocols you could use on a fishing vessel. It gets so challenging when there's that amount of unpredictability involved. And then you have the law, which is, you know, it doesn't change easily. So yeah, definitely difficult to um, work with the work with those two issues. Yeah. So the agency's first emergency action was actually in March of 2020. So they moved pretty quickly, right? Like that was really at the the beginning of the pandemic is that they kind of waived those requirements, but they were always meant to be temporary. And of course, in March, we had no idea how long the pandemic might last. And so the agency did have to extend those emergency measures um, to continue the waiver of observer requirements in September, because you know the pandemic just wasn't going away and it still wouldn't really be safe to have observers on the vessels. And then finally in March, they did adopt uh, an interim final rule. So that's a rule that is a bit more formal and uh, permanent than these emergency actions, which would put in place authority to waive observer requirements on a case by case basis in response to the pandemic. Okay. And that rule is still in effect. Interesting. So that authority to kind of to make these changes and have this flexibility, is that built into the Magnuson-Stevens Act or the regulations? Or do you know if this has ever been done before? I actually don't know. You know, we didn't get a chance to to really do that much research into like historically how the observer program operates, but it was kind of been my understanding that there was not an existing mechanism by which the agency could just say, no, you don't have to have observer coverage on your vessel. And so this may be one of those um, opportunities for the law to kind of learn and to be better prepared in the future. It's important to build flexibility into our regulations and our legal frameworks because we don't know what might be coming down the road. And it's always hard. uh, I think, you know, it's always hard for regulators. I mean, like, I, like I, the example I gave with the quota share program, you know, they had thought about a medical emergency, you know, and how that might impact somebody's ability to fish. Um, but it was a pretty narrow um, exemption, right, for a medical emergency for the individual fishing or an immediate family member. Um, and, you know, they didn't anticipate, you know, what might happen, understandably, if there was a pandemic that shut everything down. And I think that's the real challenge for the for the law and policymakers is we can anticipate some scenarios and try to build in flexibility for those scenarios that we think about. But when something comes along that has was unanticipated, then it's a real challenge sometimes to get the regulations adapted to, you know, prevent harm um, or reduce burdens that need to be kind of adjusted. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I just, you know, we talk about the impacts to like coastal communities and fisheries as a whole, but it really astounds me how COVID has, you know, specifically affected 
these like management statutes and change the way they need to operate for these fishermen. So it's been really interesting to follow along. Yeah. And one thing to, I think has been interesting for us is uh, there may be need to be flexible for other changing conditions that um, are not related to a health crisis. So there are impacts on fisheries from uh, the changing climate and changing environmental conditions. And we may be able to learn lessons from the flexibility and adaptation that happened during COVID-19 to maybe build better systems, management structures uh, for uh, fish stocks and fisheries moving forward. So we, we talked about the quota share transfers and um, the observer program coverage changes. What would you say are the main takeaways from this episode or the main lessons we've learned about how COVID has impacted um, fishery management? Well, I think for me, it one of the main takeaways is that the participation in U.S. fisheries is actually very national in scope. I think I really until COVID, I just thought of fishing communities being these historic places in the country, say, uh, you know, New Bedford, Massachusetts, or um, Homer, Alaska, or, uh, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi, you know, (laughs) and that you kind of think that all of the people who are fishing in those fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico and New England and Alaska are from that area. And I think COVID really highlighted um, to those of us not involved in commercial and recreational fishing, that's that's not the case, right? People are traveling all over the country to participate. And so I think that the takeaway, you know, from that is that if you have an event that really is of national impact, it's going to have ripple effects throughout um, the entire industry. It seems at least from the legal perspective, from what we saw just tracking the regulations as it came out, is that NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service really did respond quickly to try to mitigate and address these issues that COVID-19 was raising in the industry, right? They took action to allow transfer of quotas. They took action to address the questions with the observer programs. And so I think we'll be able to learn a lot as, you know, we find out what, what did those changes help, right? Did they, did they do what they needed to Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, we probably won't have like a complete picture of this until, you know, years after the pandemic and we're kind of, we're not there yet. So it'll be interesting to follow along. And I'm excited that at the law center, we get to, we get to do this and follow these issues. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, I I think that that's it. I I think, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think what we're trying to highlight in the podcast is just the the wide diversity um, of of legal issues that can come up in a situation like this. And, you know, before the pandemic, if you had asked me what the impact on fisheries would have been, I don't know that I would have um, said, you know, there needs to be flexibility and transfer of quotas. And so it's just very informative to kind of watch and and see what happens. 
It's clear that the collision of COVID and U.S. fisheries has taught us much about the need for flexibility within our legal frameworks in more ways than one. Whether it's fishing quotas or fishery observers, the Magnuson-Stevens Act and the various activities it regulates have proven to be a microcosm for how the nation and the world have constantly needed to adapt on the fly throughout the pandemic. Thanks from all of us at the National Sea Grant Law Center for joining us for episode four of Law on the Half Shell's second season. You can be notified when episode five is available by subscribing to Law on the Half Shell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'd be remiss not to mention that you can keep up with all the latest at the National Sea Grant Law Center by liking us or following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks again for joining us, everyone. Until next week. Thank you.